And if you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. We're going to be looking at this in a few moments and then looking at uh, Hebrews 10, uh, Lord willing, a little bit later on this evening. As we continue looking at the significance and the, and the scriptural uh, focus on the priesthood of all believers. And I want to begin with two passages, not Hebrews chapter 8, but these two passages we began with last week. And they're important for us for formulating and, and providing a foundation for us regarding this doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes to Timothy and reminds him that there is one God and there are how many mediators between God and man? One. There is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And then as a result of us having Christ, that one man who is the mediator between God and man, we are now made a chosen race, Peter tells us, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possessions, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And look with me in Hebrews chapter 8. What Paul or what the writer of Hebrews has been focusing on is we spent a lot of time looking at the significance of Melchizedek and that priesthood. He draws things to occlusion in Hebrews chapter 8 verse 1 and he says, "Now, the point in what we are saying is this, We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, Lord, we thank you that we can approach your presence and come boldly before your throne through the work, the priestly work of our elder brother, your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, we thank you that Christ delights to intercede for us, that he ever lives to make intercession for us. And Father, our hope in coming before you, even at this moment in prayer, is not found in ourselves. It's not found in our piety. It's not found in our our attendance at this service this evening. It's not found in our actions of good. But, Father, our hope before you is found in Christ alone. He is the reason we can pray this evening. And so, Father, I ask that as we continue to delve and and mine the riches of the wonder that we have, the privilege that we have as priests to you, that we would recognize that wonderful privilege, give thanks for it, and then, Father, that we would act in accordance with those riches. We pray these things in Christ's precious name, pleading His blood. Amen. So just by a quick way of review, what we looked at last week was uh, beginning to look at the need 
of our understanding of the priesthood of all believers. And we talked about why, particularly in western Pennsylvania, where we're located, that there is a strong element of Roman Catholicism here. And this is one of the doctrines that differentiates Protestants from Roman Catholics. And that is that we believe there is no longer a need to come before a priest, come before a quote-unquote father to confess our sins, to, to receive the, uh, um, the, the elements of communion, but that we are able to do that solely on our own because we are in Christ. And of course, we talked about how Catholicism um, exploited that teaching so that they were the ones that were the mediators between God and man. And, and as a result of that, they were able to fill their coffers and indulgences came into being. And we talked about how Martin Luther and much of the catalyst of the Reformation was focused on uh, really, really coming back to recognize that every believer is a priest. But again, as there is nothing new under the sun today, we still have those who would like to place themselves in between the believer and God by way of either providing gifts or providing healing or providing blessing. Uh, And so we saw how oftentimes modern health and wealth abuses from um, charismatic groups and the health and wealth gospel teachers, those who tell you to proclaim things or sow seeds into their ministries, uh, oftentimes they're doing the exact same things that the Roman Catholic Church is doing. So I think it's important that we understand and and recognize the need for understanding this doctrine today so that we don't fall into those errors, which easily we can fall into. And then we talked about now, okay, how do we provide a foundation or a basis for us as believers to have uh, an understanding of this, this doctrine of the priesthood of all believers? And we talked about last week of how it was the pattern of creation. There was no go-between between God and Adam. He would commune with God face to face. Uh, But, of course, sin entered the world, and when God came in the cool of the day, Adam did not run to see God, but he ran away from God, hid himself because he was afraid. And so there became an immediate need or understanding that there would need to be an intermediary. There would need to be someone who would be a mediator between God and man. And of course, God gave human priests for that role. Um, When we generally think of the term priest, we think of the Levitical priesthood. And as we've seen through many things in the book of Hebrews, every human priest, particularly of the Levitical priesthood, every single one of them has failures. They're beset with weakness. They, they would fall into sin. There, there was a number of issues with human priests. And even if we look and, and consider Melchizedek and, and see that Melchizedek is not, that Christ is not made in the image of Melchizedek, but Melchizedek is the one who resembles the Son of God, as is said in Hebrews chapter 7. So every human priest has failures. So what do we need? We need a perfect high priest. And praise God, we have one in Jesus Christ. We find the high priestly office of Christ as the capstone and the foundation of our role as human priests. Look with me here in Hebrews chapter 8. Now, what's interesting is how the writer here draws to a conclusion everything he's been talking about regarding Melchizedek. 
He's been talking about how Melchizedek came on the scenes. He's been talking about how Melchizedek was, was a greater priestly line than that of Levi and how Levi, in some sense, get paid tithes to God through Melchizedek through Abraham because he was in the loins of his ancestor Melchizedek when he met him. But what we find, and, and all of this back and forth about Melchizedek and then showing that Jesus Christ is, in verse 22 of chapter 7, the guarantor of a better covenant as he is a great high priest, all of this draws to this conclusion that, that the writer of Hebrews tells us, this is the point in all of this that we've seen. We have such a high priest. I think it's important to note here that there is no need of another go-between. We possess, we have as our own, by virtue of our union with Christ by faith, by virtue of our hope in Him, we are currently possessing a high priest. This is written in the present tense. So we could translate that we are continuing to have such a high priest priest. You know, one of the main points that uh, the writer of Hebrews made differentiating between Melchizedek or, or particularly Levi is that every year or after so many years, what would happen to the high priest? He would die. And so there would need to be another high priest put into place. But Christ has his priesthood how long? Eternally, forever. And so we have, we possess in Christ an eternal high priest. There's no need for us to seek any other mediator between God and man. This, I think, is, is the, the main salvo fired against the idea of a clergy and lay distinction. We are all having access at this moment to Christ. You don't need to come to me to go to Christ. You can go to Christ yourself directly. There's no need of any other go-between. And that's the whole point of what the writer of Hebrews is drawing to a conclusion about his discussion about Christ and Melchizedek. We have such a high priest. He also is then going to base our um, understanding and our hope as a kingdom of priests upon Christ. We cannot be priests before God unless Christ is our high priest. The Levites, there were many different Levites, and it was from the Levites that priests would be chosen. But was every priest a high priest? No. There was only one high priest. And so it is with us today. We have a high priest. And that high priest is Christ. One other thing we see here is that this high priest, who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty and high, he is a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Later on in chapter 9, he will talk about how the tabernacle and the temple were copies of the actual heavens, that they are meant to represent the very abiding place and the throne room of God Himself. And while these 
sacrifices from bulls and goats were offered over and over again in the tabernacle, it was but a copy of the real thing. It was a facsimile. It was a replication. But it wasn't the true, genuine thing. You know, there is a vast amount of difference between a genuine, true thing and a replica. Um, So, last Christmas, my parents, knowing my obsession with typewriters, they got me a Lego typewriter. So there's a, there's a kit that you can put together, and it's a, like a little working typewriter. All right? It's nice. I haven't put it together, probably because I don't have the patience for Lego-type things like that. But also, it's not a real typewriter. It's, it, 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 it doesn't hold a candle to the ancient technology that still soldiers on in us typewriter collectors today. I, I think of the story you probably heard, and I won't rehash over and over again, of Uncle Bill's violin. You remember the story of Uncle Bill's violin? When we bought our house, we found this, I thought it was a piece of ham wrapped up in like, in like butcher paper. It wasn't. It was a violin, and inside it I looked, and it said, Antonio Stradivarius. I'm like, we just paid for our house. We got a Stradivarius here. Well, I took it to an expert, and they immediately told me, yeah, even though it's, it's old, it's an old fake. People, and of course, did it have the, you know, I still have a mortgage. <laughs> so it was not worth the same value as the real thing. The Levitical priesthood was a facsimile. It was a copy. It was that which was to represent the real, genuine thing. And praise God, the true priest of God came. That this great high priest goes and he is ascended at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, ministering in the holy place, in the true tent that Yahweh himself set up, not man. And he came not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own precious blood. Notice what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 9, 11 through 14, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that are to come or have come, have come. Again, notice the emphasis on what we have now. Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing what? An eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. What a glorious hope we have in the high priestly work of Christ. You know, there's an application here that I think we often miss when we think about 
the glories of Christ's high priestly work. We, we revel in those words that he has offered himself eternally, that there's an eternal, continual hope in him, that we possess these things. And, and we see the, the contrast between the blood of bulls and goats and the blood of Christ and how superior and, and perfect and, and effective the offering of Christ is. We see all those things and we find great hope and, and joy and peace in those things. But the writer of Hebrews presses deeper. We should not just stand amazed in the presence of Jesus of the Galilee and then not move from that. In fact, earlier on in this passage, he talks about, I need to move on to maturity. These glorious things of how Christ has died and how He has provided a great sacrifice and how we can have hope in those, those are, those are the milk of the gospel. But what does it look like to live out the meat? It is seen in our consciences being purified to turn away from dead works and instead to do what? Serve the living God. We think of the priesthood of all believers as a great privilege. It is. But to be a priest is to serve our God. In fact, over and over again in the commands given to the priests in Leviticus, it is they are told that they are to be ministers before the Lord. You know, again, that's another term that I think we have robbed the true meaning of it in the church today. What is a minister? Who is a minister? Point to the ministers in this congregation right now. Me and all of you. We are all ministers. Why? Because we are all priests to God. See, the reality of these truths should not just allow us to stay stuck and glorying in those things. And so we should, and we should praise God and sing of those things. But it should then move us forward to serve the living God. And the motivation for that service is completely different. Because notice what he says, that this purifies our conscience, cleans away our what? Dead works. If we do what we do because we think it is going to somehow earn us favor before God, that is dead works. Because what are our righteousness? What are our good works? They are nothing but a filthy rag. What needs to happen to that rag? It needs to be cleansed. It needs to be purified. And it is through the blood of Christ, but then that moves us then to now serve Him not as a act of gaining favor from him but as an act of gratitude giving all that we are to him in service you know i think if if we are to connect the correlations between the priests of the old testament and the priests of the new us as believers what was the levitical priest life really all about it was about service. And, and notice what, what Paul says. I mean, I don't have it up here on the screen, but I'm just thinking of Romans chapter 12. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a what? 
living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable unto God, which is a spiritual act of worship. And that's seen in, first of all, not having our lives conformed or pressed into the mold of this world, but instead being transformed by the renewing of our mind. So when we see Christ as our great high priest, and then the, the consequence of that being our own priesthood, it should call us, seeing what He has done and offering Himself without blemish to God, it should drive us, it should motivate us. It should energize our service before Him. Let's also look at, again, a little bit closer at what Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2. He tells us that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who did what? Gave Himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Do you notice how the the mediatorial work of Christ is always connected with His sacrifice? Christ does not come before the Father and offer a lesser sacrifice than the sacrifice of Himself. This is why it is so significant that when Jesus comes on the scene... And John the Baptist sees him. He proclaims loudly, Behold the Lamb of God. And what does that Lamb do? Takes away the sins of the world. There is only one sacrifice that can truly provide redemption, and that is Christ. And there is only one mediator of that sacrifice, and that is Christ Himself. He is the priest, and the sacrifice. So this again points us to realizing that our sacrifices to garner favor with God are useless. We can never, can you ever be a sacrifice as worthy as Christ? It's folly to think we can do that. And yet, over and over again, the history of human religion is sacrifice yourself so that you can be acceptable before God. It will never happen. There has only been one person who has stood before the quote-unquote cosmic scales and be found worthy, and that is Jesus Christ. And then He comes and provides for His people The righteousness, the sacrifice, the cleansing, and the redemption needed so that we can now bypass the scales and come directly into the presence of God. We do this, every religion does this, but I believe as Christians we do the same thing. We oftentimes look at our deeds and think that they are the things that make us right with God. I come to church. I read my Bible. I pray. We maybe will deny that idea out loud, but in our practices and in the depths of our hearts, we often are set towards self-righteousness. And one of the things we discussed Wednesday as we were discussing um, a very minute point about Greek translation and its understanding regarding the sin of homosexuality, um, 
one of the things that is missed in that entire discussion is the point that in that list of people that are excluded from the kingdom are not just those who are involved in all sorts of terrible sexual sins. It's also those who cheat at business. Those who, who, who do things that we all have done. And the point is to show that we cannot give a ransom of ourselves. We are stained with sin. But Christ is not. And so he is the one who was only, who, the only one who was qualified to be the sacrifice, and he is the only one who was qualified to offer himself as a sacrifice. And so powerful is his sacrifice that he gives himself as a ransom for all. All who come to Christ will be saved. Isn't that a glorious hope? All who come to Christ will be saved. There is no one who, turning to Christ in faith, depending upon Him completely, and having their identity completely wrapped up in Him, there is no one who does that, that the Father will look at and say, I reject you, because to reject that person would be to reject His own Son. So we have to recognize that the priesthood that we have, the, the privilege that we have as priests, as believers, is completely dependent on who Jesus Christ is. He is our high priest. And so only through Him can we have a hope to be high priests ourselves. Which then brings us to see Finally, as we look at this foundation of the priesthood of all believers, that we now are a kingdom of priests. Remember, we're talking about these offices that Christ has. Christ is prophet. And as prophet, He provides the truth that we need to know God. He then is our high priest. And as our high priest, He is that mediator between God and man. He is the one who, who has now allowed us to be accepted before the Father. And then the final one that we haven't talked about is that He is what? King. And so when we look at His priestly work and His, and his kingly work, they're both sort of overlapping because what a king has is a kingdom. And what is the kingdom of Christ? You know, it's not land it's not an inhabitation here on this earth. It's not riches. It's not even the pearly gates and the gold paved roads. It is His people. The kingdom that Christ rules over are His people. And those people are all of them, what? Priests. As a consequence of Christ's intercessory work, the people whom He has redeemed are now become a kingdom of priests. This was God's intention from the beginning of His prophecy and talking about the priestly uh, or, or what He was going to do in saving His people. Notice what He says here in Isaiah 61, 6. You shall be called the priests of Yahweh. They shall speak of you, the entire nation, the entire kingdom, as what? Ministers of 
our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. There is a, a glorious hope here. It's interesting. Isaiah 61, all right, we jumped in in, in verse 6, but what comes before verse 6? Verses 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. I feel like the sesame. Count one, ah, 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 you know. Verses 1 through 5 speak in context of how the promised Messiah would come and would be endowed with the Holy Spirit. That he would receive the Spirit in full measure. And that the effect of him having the Spirit in full measure was that his people would become priests to God. In fact... What does Paul tell us in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-20? What? Know you not that your bodies are what? A temple of who? The Holy Spirit. That, that we are ourselves priests in a temple that now is our own bodies. That's the connection that's brought together here. And so we are become priests before God. And then as we've seen already in 1 Peter chapter 2, you, this is important, you will be or you are. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. I think it's important, particularly understanding Peter's focus. Who is Peter writing to? What have we been looking at on Sunday mornings? It's the path of a what? pilgrim. We're strangers. We're foreigners. We're exiles. We don't belong here. Why? Because our citizenship is in another kingdom. A kingdom in which we ourselves are royal priests. We are a people whom God Himself claims as His own possession. I I love that phrase. His own possession. I, I, I sort of think of it, this is, if I can think of it this way in a reverent way. You ever seen like kids get together and they're having a play date or whatever, they're having a good time, and then the one kid goes to take the toy from the other kid, and that kid says no, and he grabs it and says, that's what mine. Now, obviously, there's no one that's playing toys with God, but... I think the implication is the same. When when a kid reaches for a toy that's his, he doesn't want it to be taken by anyone else. And that's why Jesus talks about how we are held in the hands of our Father. And is anyone ever able to pluck us out of our Father's hands? No, because we're His. We're a people for His own possession. And this is done... So that, what do we do as priests? We stand and we are able to come before God, but then we now see the connection with the prophetic office. We are to what? Proclaim, to preach. Preach what? And this, I think, is what's so often missed in churches. Are we supposed to preach how you can have a more successful life? Are are we supposed to preach how primarily your marriages can be better? Are we, are we supposed to preach how we, you should 
read the Bible better and, and memorize Scripture more. No. Listen, there are biblical principles for all those things, but the primary message of the church is the excellencies of Christ. Proclaiming Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. And then Peter reminds us that we once were not a people. There was a time when we were not priests before God. We were aliens and strangers to who Christ was. But we who were not a people, now we are God's people. And and if we can sum up what God's people are, who they are, we are a people who have, what? Received mercy. We've received mercy. Reminds me of Queen Esther. You know, it was a, it was a capital offense for someone to come before the king without an invitation. She goes before him and the king accepts her. Doesn't banish her. Doesn't have her beheaded. But accepts her as his bride. And the scriptures speak of the church as the bride of Christ. Look, it is a capital offense for a sinner to come before a holy God. What is Isaiah's response when he stands before the holiness of God? I am undone. I'm ruined. But he received what? Mercy. Where did that mercy come from? The coals from the altar. And so it is for us, we have been made a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood, a people that are typified as those who have received mercy. This becomes one of the, one of the main realities at the end of all time. In the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 through 6, He speaks of how we are from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of kings on earth, to Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom. And that kingdom is a kingdom of what? Priests to His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And we see in Revelation chapter 5, the great chorus, they sing the new song, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people from God, from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. This is the great glory 
of our high priest. He is the lamb that is standing as though he has been what? Slain. And he is the lamb who is also the lion of the tribe of Judah. This is our great hope. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 98. This is where we see in the Psalms this new song described by the psalmist. This is a a simple psalm. There's no grandiose superscript above it. There's nothing that tells us what's going on. We don't even have it technically attributed to any particular author. It's just called a psalm. And what does this psalm call us to do? Sing to the Lord A new song. Why? Because He has done marvelous things. Do we not marvel at Revelation 5? What are these marvelous things that He has done? His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation. Now, this is important to catch. For who? For us? For Him. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Listen, part of what we have as a privilege in our priestly office is that we can display to the world around us what God has done. We can proclaim that, that we don't need to go to confession. You know, you talk with, I'm sure you come into contact with Roman Catholic friends. And and if the subject comes up and you just say, I don't need to go to confession. I don't need any mediator. I go straight to, to God through Christ. And you can too, if you turn to Him in faith. I mean, this can be seen in things just as simple as public prayer. You know, you sit down at a, at a meal at a restaurant, pray out loud. Do it in such a way so that those around you hear you. I mean, probably wouldn't be good to stand up on the table and, and shout it out, but why, maybe why not? You probably wouldn't be invited back to that restaurant. But, but through those type of things, we're able to proclaim what we have, not as a way of showing pride, Listen, we're not, to, we're not to boast of our prayer in front of the world. The Scriptures are clear about that. But we can display the priestly office we have. As a result of this, we're called to make, verse 4, a joyful noise to the Lord. All the earth to break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Here's one thing that I think we forget when we, when we worship. Worship is a priestly work. If you think about what, the, what was going on with, with the, the, the worship life of Israel, it was the priests that were leading that. There were particular Levites who were set aside to minister in music. 
And so now we all are priests. So what is every single believer commanded to do? Make a joyful noise. Listen, when we have the opportunity to sing songs to the Lord, we have an incredible privilege to praise Him in His presence. The very fact that we can praise Him and make these joyful noises and they be accepted is part of the priestly privilege that we have as those who are in Christ. So sing heartily. Sing loudly. You know, I've always appreciated that this congregation has sung out from the heart, but we can do better. We should wake up the neighbors with our singing. And we don't have a drum set to do that with most other churches have. We have the glory to break forth into joyous song and sing praises. We sing praises to the Lord with a lyre, with a lyre and the sound of the melody, with trumpets, the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. And then he likens it to the sea roaring. Yeah, it's one of, one of the most amazing sounds. Is it, I remember one year, Rita and I, for our anniversary, went to Ocean City and we got... We got this really good deal on like an oceanfront condo. And I remember in the morning opening the door and just hearing the waves crash, that roar of the sea. And then if, if you walk out past the dunes, that's the first thing you hear is the roar of the seas. And that's nothing compared to what it sounds like in a great storm. And the psalmist is calling us as priests before God who are reveling in the marvelous things that God has done to let our worship be like the sea that roars. All that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Have you ever been to Niagara Falls? Heard the, the roar of a river clapping against, against rocks and then falling down. I, I remember going whitewater rafting and, and even you know, doing some kayaking here and there where you hear these, these, these waves crashing against rocks. Let the hills sing for joy together. Now this is, this is amazing to see. How, how can we make a joyful noise to the Lord if He is coming, verse 9, to do what? To judge the earth. How can the judgment of the Lord be a source of joy for His people? Because we are in Christ. Notice what's said at the end of this last verse. How does God judge the world? He judges the world with what? Righteousness. He judges the world with righteousness. If we look to ourselves, will we meet the standard? No. But if we're in Christ, who has cleansed us by His blood, then we need fear nothing when He comes to judge the world. And He does so with equity. Judges the peoples with equity. So we are a kingdom of priests. That 
priesthood is dependent upon Christ as our high priest, but we are his priest. May that be a call for us to live out a life with a purified conscience, ministering before the Lord, proclaiming this hope that we have, and joyfully and thunderously worshiping him for who he is. Next week, we're going to talk a little bit more about now what does that look like on a day-to-day basis? What does it look like to be a priest? How does that work its way out on a daily basis? And in fact, if, if you want a little bit of homework, you're like, yeah, who wants homework? Well, this is good homework. Take some time and read Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 through 25. That'd be, I think that'd be a good thing for us to do. This week, sometime, maybe a couple times, read Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, and we'll see what it means then for us to be priests before our God. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we are thankful to you that we are not cast out of your presence because of our sin, but, be, but that we are accepted before you because of Christ. Father, we thank you that our high priest who is ever living to make intercession for us is at this very moment at your right hand. And Father, we possess him as our high priest. So Father, may that reality spur us, drive us, inflame our passion to serve you, to live for you. Father, thank you that we need no mediator but Christ and that we can come before your presence now depending fully on him. We pray this in Christ's precious name, pleading his blood. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us here in person. Thanks for joining us online. Have a great week.